Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. So I'll read a little bit of Genesis 1 at the start. Um, This is a a translation from Everett Fox. He has done a translation of the first five books called the Five Books of Moses, Um, as well as some, he's got a later translation of some other texts from the Hebrew Bible. And his, his concern when he translates into English from Hebrew is that you would hear in English some of the dynamics of Hebrew. Um, Hebrew is a very alive language, you know. God doesn't say, let there be light in, in Hebrew. God just says light, and it's this particular tense of a verb. That's this kind of uh, impassioned, electrifying, creative um, tense of a verb. An imperative, but with much more. So I'll read some of this and you will get a lovely sense from um, Everett Fox's translation about how rich and powerful the language is. At the beginning of God's creating of the heavens and the earth, when the earth was wild and waste, darkness over the face of ocean, rushing spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw the light that it was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was setting, there was dawning one day. God said, let there be a dome amid the waters and let it separate waters from waters. God made the dome and it separated the waters that were below the dome from the waters that were above the dome. It was so God called the dome heaven. There was setting, there was dawning second day. It goes on like that. And at the end of each um, each day, you hear this refrain. There was set, setting, there was dawning, first day, second day. And it isn't the first day, the second day. It is just first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day. And then um, it does say the sixth day, which is a really interesting change in the poetry. Um, in Hebrew poetry and in a lot of poetry, when you're building up a rhythm, you know, you might have something, a chorus perhaps, and the chorus is the same. But if there's ever a modulated chorus, that's always interesting. And so the fact that the sixth day is called the sixth day rather than just sixth day, it is an indication to pay a particular kind of attention to this. Um, over and over throughout this poem at the beginning, of the Hebrew Bible, what you see is that the, um, the the concern and the curiosity is with the creative power of language and what it is that happens when somebody speaks. What we have here is poets putting words into the mouth of God. Um, so much of the poetry of that era had similar-ish um, poetries of creation, little bits that we'd have echoes from what we now know as Genesis 1, bits that we'd have echoes from what we know as Genesis 2. Lots of those Near Eastern mythologies had a world, um, a flat world, with a community of gods, and uh, and that community of gods fought and then killed one of the other gods, and from the body of that dead god sprung two trees, and then the rest of the community of gods would mix the blood of the dead god with the earth and then breathe on it and from that would come a proto-man and a proto-woman 
And so what you see, uh, this this text was probably written in conversation, probably with those Babylonian myths. What you see, though, is there's some profoundly um, powerful distinction, distinction points made between those texts and this one. There's no war here. There is a God speaking in the plural, and there are books and books of Jewish um, commentary about why did God say we, and none of them pay any attention to the Christian imagination of Trinity, and that's appropriate because the Christian imagination of Trinity is in an appropriate lens to put into a, an ancient Hebrew text. And what you see is that there was an imagination in these poets that at the beginning of things there was harmony and a God who was plural, and that God who was plural created humanity who was plural, and that there was plural coming from plural. And that's a fascinating imagination. Um, there's beautiful texture to some of the language as well. You see, you hear it here in um, Genesis 2 or 1 and 2, at the beginning of God's creating of the heavens and the earth, when the earth was wild and waste. Wild and waste is how it's translated here. Um, tohu vavohu is the Hebrew term. And nobody really knows what tohu vavohu means. It probably means something like higgledy piggledy or pell mell or if you were speaking in Irish, in so many languages, when they're trying to describe chaos, have rhyming sequences or sequences of alliteration. Um, welter and waste, you, all, you also hear when translated into English, formless and void as well. And it's so curious to me that this text is concerned with describing chaos. And I, I do think that the book of Genesis is this ongoing struggle between a desire that people have for putting some kind of form on a chaos that's pursuing them. No more so perhaps than in the life of Abraham, who was pursued by a fear of fire over and over and over again. Abraham is pursued by a fear of fire. The Jewish commentary suggests that Abraham was almost burnt alive by his father. And so that he had this lifelong chaos and fear of fire. Even when Abraham meets God, he says, who am I to speak to you? I who am but dust and ashes. And so you hear that God is pursuing him through the deepest level of his own chaos. And then when he makes the first covenant and he splits that animal in two, God passes through as a cauldron of fire. And so it's very rich psychoanalytically to pay attention to the character of chaos that's present here. The Hebrew Bible poets were not trying to make a, a sequence of poetry that was saying, this is how it can all be perfect, but rather saying, this is what we know of the chaos of the world. Um, just one other quick thing to say is that um, the uh, translation here from Everett Fox says, at the beginning of God's creating of the heavens and the earth. And um, the Hebrew is Bereshit Baralachim, um, with Bereshit being the first word, and that, that's translated as Genesis. Um, uh, hence the name of the book, Genesis. And in Hebrew, the book is called Bereshit. But uh, it's curious that, that that word begins with B, because technically, for a piece of religious poetry, it should begin with A. Hebrew had a very, very particular understanding of acrostic poems. You might have learned acrostic poems at school, you know, a poem that where the first letter of each line spells out mummy or spells out um, summer or something like that. You know, there's a almost like a code, a hidden message. Regularly in Hebrew poetry, it'll be alphabetical. So many of the Psalms are written in that kind of acrostic sequence where the first letter is going through um, a piece of form. 
But what's extraordinary here is that the first letter here doesn't start off with Aleph. It doesn't start off with A. It starts off with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, B. And there's long arguments again as to why this is. Um, there's a lovely midrash, um, like a, a psychoanalytic commentary of the text that's hundreds and hundreds of years old, where the letter A and the letter B have an argument for 26 generations before God, and God is completely pissed off by the end and says to them after 26 generations, look, can I strike a deal with the two of you? And God says to the letter A, I know you're jealous, but how about I let you start off the, um, uh, start off the commandments? And the letter A thinks about it and kind of reckons people are probably more likely to recite the commandments than they are to recite the opening text of the book of Genesis. So I'll take you up on your offer, God. And finally, God had a little bit of peace. But one of the ways that you can look at this too is seeing that the motif the whole way throughout Hebrew Bible, and especially in the book of Genesis, is sibling pairs where the second is chosen over the first. You can think of this in terms of um, twins. You can think of it in terms of the sisters, um, Leah and uh, Rebecca. Over and over again, you see these um, Cain and Abel, you know, the whole lot even the anxiety in that long extended saga of the sibling pairs um, of the of the sibling relationships with um, Joseph and his brothers and even with Joseph's Joseph's nephew and niece with with Judah and how and Judah's daughter-in-law Tamar and she has two um, twin boys and one is coming out first and so they tie a red ribbon around its wrist and <laughs> clearly the writer knew nothing about childbirth because then it says that the other one pulls the one back and comes out instead <laughs> just hilarious but you just see that right from the word go from the first letter of the of the entire poetry of this that there is a there's a, a sibling rivalry between nears um and in terms of who's going to win and that the the primogeniture the idea that the firstborn is always going to be supreme is completely undone and that too is its own sense of chaos and its own sense of um, upsetting expectations. So the, the, the texture of the text is filled with so much. Um, I'm not somebody who has any certitude about the idea of God, but I have deep appreciation for the poetry of the Bible. And um, when I hear people say, just discount Genesis chapter one and Genesis two and three, imagining that the only way to interpret them is literal and therefore they are to be discarded because they are meant to be literal texts they have completely misread what the purpose of this poetry is the purpose of this poetry is perhaps a little bit more like um anthropology to try to describe something about what the experience of being human is and to try to put mythology around what the origins were margaret atwood the brilliant canadian writer says that she thinks that one of the reasons why Genesis 2 and 3 had to be written was because people later on were trying to explain why do so many women die in childbirth? And they wrote backwards a mythology that A gave blame and B gave story. I'm not saying that that's a good mythology that was written backwards, but what I really appreciate is her understanding that mythology is usually created in order to make sense of the present. And what is the chaos of the present in Genesis 2 and 3 that was seeking to be made sense of? And I think it makes a lot of sense what she suggests that um, people were trying to come up with some kind of story about why women die in childbirth and why work is hard. <laughs> That's really, uh, really fascinating, Padre, just hearing you talk like that about, yeah, the poetry that starts the Hebrew Bible. Like, 
I wonder, as a poet yourself, and as someone who has a deep, deep appreciation of of poetry, like what do you think is the gift that this sacred book starts with a poem as opposed to a command, like a sense of commandments or prose or history or what, what do you think the gift is to us that it begins with a poem? Well, I think a poem is always going to be a relationship of language and form and uncontainability. Um, every poem will fail. There is no such thing as the perfect poem. There is, for a poet, you, for me, it's like I hear a rhythm and I hear a tone and I hear a note. And I'm when I'm writing, I'm constantly discerning, does that fit in with that? Does that fit in with that? Does that feel right? Why does this word feel righter than that word? And you're, you're, you're tuning your ear to something while you're writing or typing. And that is always a, a relationship of tension and it's a relationship that the longer you do it the more you realize that you have to come to terms with the fact of your own failure that you'll never get a poem that is a perfect echo of that greater poem that you're overhearing and i think that therefore there is a relationship between writing between skill between failure um between chaos and between art that's all present there and I, I love that Hebrew Bible does not start off with um, a command, but it starts off with a, a thing that we all share in, which is language. And that by speaking there, it invites all people into the creative act and asks of all people what it means to be involved in a creative act and what it means to imagine, what it means to fail to, and what it means to have a relationship with chaos. And in the midst of that, to not give up in the face of chaos. Um, you can't conquer it either. Yeah. So I, I love that. I mean, the, these repeated phrases I mentioned already, first day, second day, third day, um, uh, you know, there was setting, there was dawning. But then there's other gorgeous phrases um, that, you, that you hear in Hebrew, you know, verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout forth with sprouting forth, plants that seed forth seeds, fruit trees that yield fruit after their kind and in which is their seed upon the earth it was so the earth brought forth sprouting growth plants that seed forth seeds after their kind trees that yield fruit in which is their seed after their kind and so you hear there that there's this desire to say what was said came to be and there is a, a giving of an import of language and in the god character that's being created there god says and it happens and I suppose one of the things that was in the concern of the poets here is an integrity of language. What are you saying? Is it going to happen? Not that human beings create worlds, but we can't destroy them. And uh, ancient as these poetries are, their, their emotional lives in, in, in the evolution of the earth, you know, they, they lived yesterday, you know, in comparison to everything that came before. Um, and so their emotional lives were as sophisticated as ours. Their recognition of spin doctors and charlatans and people who hate people and people who wish to destroy people was as emotional as ours. They might have had access to less information, but not access to less sophistication about the human enterprise. And so I, I think there is a recognition too amongst these poets to say, you can really get this wrong. You can do terrible things with language and to try to find a way to echo this in a poem. Of course, the people who wrote this poem weren't thinking, this is going to be the first chapter of the book of Genesis. How exciting, you know? This is a poem that somebody wrote for a purpose that we don't understand. 
um, this emerged from a person or community of people's desire to say something that felt true. And later on, much, much later on, of course, it got wrapped in as the opening text. I'm often struck, Padre, like, you know, listening to your poetry on Unbound and um, and reading a bit of poetry myself, just, um, yeah, just its connection with art and even sound and song. Like often when you hear a poem read, it's not just about the words. It's almost about the song that it sings as it's being read. And it, you often pick that up when you when you hear it rather than when you yeah. read it. And yeah. I think there's something beautiful that is that we encounter when we listen to this poem being read as if it's a song being sung. And even like it was at C.S. Lewis that made like it kind of puts the set the idea of God singing creation into mm. talking. Into yeah. Talking. yeah. Like, so like it was like a singing, like God singing over the the chaos and bringing forth beauty. And I just, yeah, I do think there's something wonderful in that. And I, I wondered if you could read a bit of this in Irish for us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so that we can just, again, like we're not going to understand the, the words unless anyone randomly can speak Irish, but so that we can hear the song and the beauty yeah. is just kind of yeah. echoing in us. That would be I'm wonderful. so glad you mentioned about the, the sound of poetry rather than just reading it, Carol, because... Um, like it's estimated kind of uh, archaeological sociology talking about the time of Jesus of Nazareth, which is much later than the time that these poetries were written, um, estimate that about 4% 4, 4 of people could write and read in the time of Jesus. So what we, what we understand then is that there was phenomenal retention of text, that people had enormous repositories of text that they'd learnt and increased capacities, I think, for absorbing and retaining text. Um, and within the context of that, therefore, there was lots of rhythms put in to help you to remember, almost like mnemonic devices to help you to remember there's going to be seven verses that will start with the letter B or there's going to be um, a sequence that goes through, you know, the alphabet. So many of these were devices for holding the piece together, but also for communication and for rhetorical purposes. So anyway, and, and then within the context of that, there was ways within which language is used uh, um, for great beauty and that the language is not just um, discerned through a forensic analysis of what the language is saying, but also through the feel of it, through the sound of it. If you ever Google um, Persian poetry, it's worthwhile doing it. I do it from time to time. And you hear poetry being recited in Persian and it's kind of intoned. I wouldn't quite say it's sung, but it's intoned at a higher pitch and it's beautiful. It's mesmeric. Um, on Poetry Unbound recently, we had Margaret Newton, who's an indigenous American poet who sang her poet in Anishina Bimowin. And it was so powerful to hear her. I'd read the poem and understood, of course, that we would we would need her to read the poem in Anishina Bimowin and in English. And then when we contacted her, she said, kind of somewhat awkwardly, you know, I don't read them. I I, I sing them and we're like, even better, magnificent. Um, and it was so beautiful to hear her do that. Um, and there was something communicated really in, in, this, in the melody. Yeah. Anyway, so here's the opening part of Genesis in Irish. Edus Boira, Kruhig Dia Nyav Agus Talav, Fasak Falav Abay and Talav Agus Vidarchada Seraig and Devagain, Agus Vigay Deg Shed Oskyon Neshki. Dortia, 
Bich Salasan, August Vian Salasan, Hanek Diego Wai and Salas, August Scardi and Salas on Dorchabas, Hug the Law and Salas, August Eher and Dorchabas, Bahin and Head Law, unknown, August and White. Wow. <laughs> that was, yeah, that was amazing. Um, the, the question I, that's coming up for me is, I guess I'm hearing you speak about chaos maybe in, two, in two, a few different ways. Mm. One, I guess I primarily think of chaos as something that's destructive. You know, it's when bad things happen out of the blue, it's pain and loss. And then you're also talking about it, it as um, unexpected expectations, unexpected expectations being unexpectedly shifted. Um, yeah, and I guess, what, what do you think this poem says to those of us, you know, in our church that are, are experiencing some kind of chaos, whether it feels dangerous or it feels positive, but it's still scary? What, do, what does this poem say to us? Well, I, I think it says something like, um, it has been ever thus. <laughs> You know, lots of us go through times in our lives when we feel like, great, I've gotten it sorted, you know, home and work and personal life and private life and all of that. I've got it in a rhythm. <laughs> and then you go, let me keep this rhythm and it'll all be lovely. And then, it, of course, it falls apart. And others of us feel like our entire lives have been plagued by a, being pursued by chaos. And no matter what you do, you can never quite get it sorted out. I'm not saying that it's a good idea to, to court chaos in a way that it's um, uh, uh, creating chaos for the sake of chaos. But I am saying that the poets of this text knew what it was like to, to recognize that there is this void. There is this um, place where we don't know what is happening, this tov of this thing for which there is no even no words. All there is is sounds. And even in the sounds we make about it, they have to rhyme because we can't stand the fact that it has no it has no rhythm. And I, I think it can be a comfort to those of us who have felt our lives to be plagued by trauma, felt our lives to be plagued by a chaos that we have never been able to conquer to go. Well, actually, the earliest poets also knew that they couldn't conquer it. And for those of us who think here, I have the system. If only everybody could do what I'm telling them to do, I think it says a fairly firm shut up. Uh, in the context of that, to recognize that the first poets knew that there was no simple system for controlling that. The question is, is how are you going to live in relationship with the tohu vavohu that is part of your life? For some people, that's amplified very high. For some people, that's not. Um, I, I think it's a good idea to find a way to engage with the creative side of it, to find a way to recognize that there is an anarchic, recognition that there is no system that will be perfect and that i think can be a comfort when you have been plagued <laughs> excuse me not covid i'm sure everybody <laughs> says that when they sneeze now um i'm sure there is a way within which for many of us it can be a comfort to realize my god i'm not to blame for the chaos that has pursued me maybe i am being asked to live in yeah, a more increased creative relationship with that as i'm able but i'm not to blame for it and so many systems of religion have gone out of their way to blame people for the chaos that has been present in their lives. Um, yeah. 
certainly for me, the older I've gotten and the more I've written poetry. And for me, certainly poetry asks for a kind of brutal honesty, um, not in terms of data, but in terms of um, how, how confusing it can be to be alive. Um, I, I have deepened my relationship with the Tohu Vavohu. Maybe that's another name for God too. We don't know. God comes in all kinds of forms. Um, and certainly this text makes no, has no desire to explain what came before this first day. It's not trying to describe the origins of the universe. It's trying to describe a way of putting a certain kind of knowability upon the unknowability of the everything. And even there, there's a gap where there's a recognition of an uncontainable chaos. That's great. I um, imagine, Padre, that there's some, there'll be some people listening to this and watching this for whom poetry is like a foreign language, maybe something they've never really engaged with beyond the mummy acrostic that they had to write in year two or, <laughs> or the poems they had to study in high school. And um, and I do think, you know, I, I, I think there have been times in my life when I was younger that I felt like that, that poetry was just inaccessible or... Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I do remember thinking if they want to say something, why don't they just say it plain? Like what, you know, like having that feeling about, you know, and, and then I think I've, I have discovered the beauty of, of language and poetry. But for those people listening who find it hard to ex access, what, what tips would you give them as they, as they read this Genesis chapter one or any of the poetry through, you know, our, our scriptures or even just poetry in general, what, what is just an easy way to read it and sit with it that, you know, people might help people engage something just that bit beyond what they're reading? Well, um, I suppose often poetry is trying to say a few things at once. Um, Marie Howe, an American poet, suggests that the first poem was a mother singing to her child and making sounds. Mm -hmm, mama. And just something like that, that perhaps evolved into the word mother. Um, but also within that there's singing and also within that there's care and also within that there's love. And there is a sense of rocking. There's a sense of movement and there's a sense to say it's OK, even if it's not. It's making a little world to say this is OK in that first poem that's imagined by Marie Howe. And that, I think, is a fine way to imagine what all poetry is trying to do. It's, um, there's a Scottish poet, Don Patterson, who says, a poem is a little machine for remembering itself. I love that. And that somehow the words are trying to hold something together. And in holding it together, it's usually saying three or four things. Often poetry uses very plain language and it might have a top surface meaning and then a next surface meaning and a next surface meaning. You don't have to get them all because you also will bring another surface meaning to it that the poet probably couldn't understand. And you don't have to read poems you don't like, but most people have a poem that they do. And often, strangely, we turn to poems in times of joy, in times of sadness. And there is a meeting of, of sadness and joy that comes together in the desire to put some language to it. And strangely, even in a time of sadness, um, the right words or words that are right enough can create something really powerful for us. Um, a friend of mine died when I used when I lived in Melbourne and I walked eight Ks into Melbourne city centre 
and opened up, it was a late night bookshop, opened up a part of Lord of the Rings where Gandalf the wizard has died and the elves are singing a lament and somebody who doesn't speak the elves language asks for a translation, but a particular elf won't give a translation because the matter was too near a matter for tears and not yet for song. And I don't know why I needed to walk. I had the book in my bedroom. <laughs> I don't know why I needed to walk all the way into the city to turn to a page in a book that I knew off by heart anyway. But I did. And that too was a poem. And somehow that too is a desire to have something that can hold us. We know it won't hold everything, but it'll hold us enough. When I was 16, there was two friends in my class who had been going out. They had been going out for nine months, which when you're 16 is a very long time. And then they split up and it was my God, like I felt like the world was ending, you know, because I, I was good friends with both of them. And the, it was a boy and a girl. Um, and the fellow was sitting next to me in chemistry class. And I saw out of the corner of my eye that he'd written this long poem in four verse, four, four, four line um, verses. Of course, I didn't read it. I understood it was private, but it was just scribbled into the back of his chemistry book. And he turned there to express heartbreak at the age of 16 when nine long months have ended. Um, so many of us do that. And it, I, I don't know why, but poetry has occurred in almost every, in I think every human culture around the world. We, it's something we do. And I don't know why. Even this is a desire to do something but it can give some comfort. It can say, this is a little echo, a little machine for you to remember yourself by. And nobody is saying, is it forensically true? That's the wrong question about a poem because it's not trying to do that. Mm -hmm. The poem is trying to do something else. Mm. I am mean to myself. What, can I ask Padraig, what, what you feel the poem of Genesis chapter one does for you? Um, yes, let me think. I'm just looking at it here. Well, there is the pleasure of language in it. Like, just to look a little bit further, I think it's the fifth day, is it? Um, I'm going to read it in Fox's translation. You know, God said, this is verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with a swarm of living beings and let fowl fly above the earth across the dome of the heavens. God created the great sea serpents and all living beings that crawl about with which the waters swarmed after their kind and all winged fowl after their kind. Um, I, I can hear the joy of language in this English translation. I think Everett Fox is very particularly keen to keep repeated sounds, you know, foul fly above the earth. You know, and Everett Fox is one of the translators who thinks if if that's present in the Hebrew, when he makes a translation into English, he tries to keep it as far as it's possible. So hence he says foul rather than birds because he wants to have it as foul fly. Mm. Um, and so partly I just think of the delight of language. And it, it shows that people have been delighting in language for a very long time, which I think is magnificent. Um, and by that, I don't mean fancy language. I don't mean language that, you know, nobody else can understand. I mean language of the kind that people say on a building site or on a bus. I was on a bus once and there was two teenagers behind me um, and they were both wearing makeup. And one of them said, I can't wait to get home so as I can scrape this face off of me. 
And I thought, what a great line. Scrape this face off of me. It just made so much sense. I, I repeated the line to myself over and over again. Scrape this face off of me. <laughs> um, I just love the sound of language and language is so entertaining. And so many of us, when we have a child in our lives, our own or a nephew or a niece or a neighbor's child or grandchild, are, are delighted when we when we begin to hear this loved child's capacity to begin to mimic and to echo and then when they come up with a sentence that clearly they are not just echoing but they they have made themselves we begin to go you are open to the world in a new way and you are seeing things where suddenly you want to go what do you see and you want to hear their mistakes i mean they're not mistakes you love them you want to hear how they're perceiving the world because somehow by their seeing you're seeing too and this i think is one of the messages of the first poem of the hebrew bible is that that isn't just a cute experience to watch children develop it is something of the capacity for all of us as our life develops to begin to pay attention to how we language what's around us you know, when I turned 40, I did um, definitely go through a change in my life where I began to realize, flip, my 30s were difficult and long and joyful, you know, like lots of people's 30s. And then I thought, I'm 40 today. I'll be 50 tomorrow and 60 the day after that. And suddenly something of a, a corner turned for me and took me a year. I couldn't write a poem for a year. Um, because uh, I had no language to describe something that was powerful, but I couldn't describe yet. Um, and when that first poem came after that, I was so relieved. It was such a, bur a burden lifted. I was supposed to be doing something else. I was supposed to be writing something else for work. And I sat down to write it. And suddenly this poem erupted and it took me all morning. And I thought, I don't care. I'll stay up late tonight if I need to, to do the work. I, I need this poem. Um, so that's, I think, one of the things that, that the book of Genesis, the first chapter, is doing. Importantly, the first chapter is also making a really powerful assertion. God created humankind in his image. In the image of God did he create it. Male and female, he created them. Um, there, there, there's such a marked contrast between the way in which um, the world is often divided into this idea that somehow God created males as dominant and females to serve the dominance of of the dominant male that is completely undone by the book of genesis in that this text and even in genesis 2 because in a certain sense how we understand is not that god created adam and then took a little bit of adam and made a woman it's actually that god created the earth person and then god split the earth person into two the adam and the eve and so both of these have an imagination of humanity that has a combination of maleness and femaleness in a, in a way. There are all kinds of echoes that, that do correspond to multiple performances and understanding of gender that are present. And this isn't me trying to read a modern interpretation back. This is, I think, reading old texts that are Jewish texts that are commenting on this and recognizing that maleness and femaleness are present in the humanity that's created. Um, so, I mean, the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is, are very interested in, in categorization, which you find in the anthropology of so, many, um, of so many communities that the way that we categorize things says an enormous amount about the world. Like if you said, if you put a child in a room and said, put all the things that are similar together, they might put all the yellow things together and the red things together. 
somebody else might put all the big things together and the small things together. Somebody else might put all the things you need for school and all the things you need in the kitchen and all the things that should be kept in your car. You know, the way that we categorize says a lot about our socialization. George Lakoff has a great book called Women, Fire and Dangerous Things. And it's a book about categorizations because one of the indigenous um, languages in Australia um, has a category within which women, fire and dangerous things are all categorized together. It's an extraordinary book. <laughs> I could see Becca writing it down. <laughs> George Lakoff, L-A-K-O-F-F, I think is his name. Write that down, Becca. And I think he's French, so he might be Georges rather than George, but we'll call him George. That was a lot. Um, I have a... <laughs> yeah, keep going. Keep going. Um, I have a, I have a poem somewhere. Um, uh, that let me see. I have a poem. I have a poem that where I use some of the language about of Genesis one. Um, uh, just to create a poem. And this was one of the poems that I wrote um, after I turned 40. I'll be 46 in October this year, so I've had a, a few years to get used to this midlife, um, which I'm very glad for. Um, make believe. And on the first day, God made something up. Then everything came along. Seconds, sex, and beasts, and breaths, and rabies. Hunger, healing, lust, and lust's rejections. Swarming things that swarm inside the dirt. Girth, and grind, and grit, and shit, and all shit's functions. Rings inside the tree trunk, and branches broken by the snow. Pig's hearts and stars, mystery, suspense, and stingrays. Insects, blood and interests and death. Eventually, us, with all our viruses, laments and curiosities, all our songs and made up stories, and our songs about the stories we've forgotten and all that we've forgotten, we've forgotten. And to hold it all together, God made time and those rhyming seasons that display decay. Oh, that's beautiful, Padraig. <laughs> and probably a wonderful way to end our, you know, official talk on Genesis 1. Thank you so much. That was amazing. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza beloved member of Central. <laughs>